0: Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health.
1: Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to your Breaking Health Podcast. Thank you for your patience and your support. It's been a while since we produced a new podcast, and uh, I am sorry about that. For those who know a bit about HealthAge, the company that produces the Breaking Health podcast, we also put on uh, events and conferences, and uh, there are times when the events business overtakes everything else. Uh, events are things that happen right then and there, and you must focus your attention on those. So thank you for your patience, for your uh, willing to wait for another Breaking Health podcast. Thank you for listening today. Uh, Your patients will be rewarded. I'm actually here to introduce something else that's taken a bit of our time. We're introducing a new podcast called Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. This podcast will be hosted by Keith Figlioli. He is a partner at LRV Health, but he's a former uh, senior executive at Premier and other uh, healthcare giants. And uh, Keith is bringing a different perspective, and a different focus to the healthcare challenge. While Steve Krupa on the Breaking Health podcast will focus on startups and investors, startup CEOs and VCs, Keith is uh, looking further up the healthcare food chain, talking with uh, innovation-minded executives at payers and providers. So it's a, it's a great compliment to the Breaking Health podcast. And I hope you will, uh, will subscribe to the Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders show. Uh, Keith is a, uh, an excellent interviewer. Anyone who was at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit last month in October can attest to that. In fact, our first episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders will be his interview with Bert Zimmerle of Intermountain. And we're actually going to give you a little taste of that conversation right here. The, the only
0: reason it's affordable to most of us is somebody else's paying. Either the government, your employer. But, you know, if you're, you're paying your own way, it, it's already unaffordable. So why do we have to innovate? It's because of that reason. It's, it's unaffordable. And I got asked the question by one of my colleagues uh, from the East Coast. Said, how do you how do you create a burning platform? In your organization, you know if you're doing well financially. And my answer is, well, have have you looked at how accessible healthcare is in your market? Have you looked if you want to get an appointment with a specialist, or with a primary care doctor, for that matter? Uh, how long does it take? How long do you wait? I mean, that you know, if to me, if if you're looking at what the issues are in healthcare, uh, access. Uh, Convenience—that uh, ought to be a burning platform, not whether you're just doing well financially. Yeah, and so tied into that, and I—some people probably know this, some people probably don't—but you guys have had an incredible track record of starting companies and really building those up. So whether it's Imperic, Lucio, obviously the beginnings of Health Catalyst came out of Intermountain, um, you know, Civic. Rx, which is the newest, I, I'm just curious sort of how you get the room. And again, what is perceived but not real in a
1: culture that sort of doesn't have that approach? What's different in Intermountain to be able to allow you to do that? All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little, uh, little snippet from Healthcare's Heart, a podcast for insiders. If you want to hear the entire conversation, just go to iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, and search for Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. That uh, is a, a, a podcast we'll be bringing to you roughly once a month. And it, again, will be a nice compliment to the Breaking Health podcast. We'll likely uh, ratchet back the uh, the number of Breaking Health podcasts to uh, two or three times a month. So uh, you will not go long without uh, fresh insights and interviews from uh, healthcare Entrepreneurs and healthcare innovators, be they at smaller companies or larger companies, we've got the whole gamut covered here at Healthigy, and I know you'll enjoy this family of podcasts. In addition to these podcasts, we have others in the medtech and ophthalmology space and uh, aesthetics as well. Our are uh, stable continues to grow, but let's get into this week's episode of the Breaking Health Podcast. Steve Krupa is uh, hard at work conducting interviews, and we'll bring you those uh, in our next episode, which will come in two weeks. This time around, though, I wanted to share uh, a conversation, or actually a a talk given by Andy Slavitt of Town Hall Ventures. And he uh, spoke at DHIS last October, excuse me, in October. And uh, it was a great talk. Uh, I mean, you could listen to Andy Slavitt talk for uh, for hours about healthcare. He uh, brings very real insights and very important insights. So uh, I didn't want to let the opportunity pass. If you weren't able to join us at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, then uh, I certainly wanted you to hear these important words. So this week's episode will center around Andy Slavitt's talk given at DHIS, and then the next episode of the Breaking Health Podcast, we'll get back into our great interview. So let's hear from Andy Slavitt of Town Hall Ventures when he's, from his speech or his talk at DHIS in October.
2: Thanks for the welcome. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a slide before where people bragged about having investment bankers at their conference. (laughs) It's pretty special. But it is interesting, you know, I, I mean, you guys went through this exercise to categorize everybody here, and it's probably getting harder. Just given, you know, you see um, some of these firms. They're clearly traditionally think of them as IDNs, and yet the people here, who I know and you know, um, are doing all kinds of things besides care delivery. They're taking risk. They're um, they're innovating. They're investing in companies. Uh, they're doing all sorts of things. And I think um, it'll be interesting how if you're continue to as you continue to sell out year after year how this um, changes and how this, how this converges and how we predicted it would happen. Um, so I'm going to just try to, I've got about a half an hour. I'm going to make a few overarching big-picture comments uh, and then hope to leave a little bit of time for questions, and I'll just see at the end uh, how much time there is for questions. Uh, you know, this is a, an industry, healthcare, and I'm going to call it an industry instead of a system, um, that is very good at figuring out how to follow the money. Uh, There's no place uh, you learn that more than CMS when you realize um, you get to CMS, as uh, was mentioned, I got there kind of in a backward sort of way, and I'm like, wow, I'm really popular. Everyone wants to talk to me. This is great. Uh, And then you find out that it's not because of your winning personality, it's because you have a trillion-dollar budget, and that'll make anybody popular, even me. Um, but I I learned uh, a lot about how all of us kind of see our roles uh, very much as central to solving the, the problems of healthcare, and we kind of see everybody else as causing the problem. I mean, if you're really we're really honest, we have a pretty good description about what we're doing. We have kind of not uh, uh, as good a view of kind of how the rest of the world comports itself, whether it's hospitals complaining about. Uh, health plans or, or PBMs complaining about uh, pharmaceutical companies or doctors complaining about everybody. It's just, that's just kind of a, um, a truism. So what I'm going to argue today is um, for what all of us does, instead of following the money, let's at least for 20 minutes, let's follow the problem. Let's, let's follow the problem. And uh, let's hope that the money leads us in the same direction. Um, And I think knowing many of you in this room like I do, I think that's exactly what you do. So how do we define the problem? And I think I'm going to define the problem in the following way. I'm going to ask the question, what is it that's most different about our health care system in the U.S. as compared to other developed countries? We've all seen the chart, we've all seen the data, which which is sort of the baseline of this, which is that on a per-person basis, we spend twice as much as every other country. And, on a, and you say, okay, well, it's, we're a wealthy country. Maybe we can afford it. Maybe we can afford to spend to- twice as much on ourselves. But then you look at what we're getting for it, and you look at the ten factors that Commonwealth Foundation puts out from early mortality, the childhood mortality, to, to waiting times, to satisfaction, to um, uh, ability to uh, care for yourself, et cetera, and we're dead last. We're dead last. We have about, in fact, if you were to see the kind of way that they analyze it, we're about half, we get about half the results for twice the money. Now, if any of us performed that way, we wouldn't, we wouldn't last in our jobs for too long, yet we're all part of the system that delivers that product. And I even make it more acute, we're all hired by the taxpayers to deliver against that system. I'll be very clear, more than half your salary in some form ends up coming from the taxpayers. So understand, much like the defense industry of the 1970s and 1980s, you are, you are the emergent government contractors. OK, so what are the problems that we need to solve for the taxpayers? What are the five, what are, I'm going to go through five differences um, which are going to frame what I think is different about us and other countries. Uh, and I'll do them roughly in, in the order of importance, but I think they're, they're all critical, and they're not easy. Uh, the first one, and Sam kind of alluded to this a little bit, is actually the simplest, simplest reason, simplest explanation. It's our unit costs. Our unit costs are much higher and we choose to allow our unit costs to be much higher because of the way we choose to, to govern and allow the parts of healthcare to operate. But on a very real basis, if you are living on a fixed income and you are buying insulin, you're paying about 10 times as much as you would pay, as the government would pay for, for you to have it if you lived in England. And the price of insulin has gone up in double digits roughly every year since 1998. And the formulation of insulin, someone could argue with this on some technicality perhaps, hasn't really changed. So this isn't, this isn't innovation. This isn't rewarding innovation. This is rewarding price-takers. This is rewarding people who have monopolies or duopolies and pricing power. And get past the, is it the... Pharma company's fault, or the PBM's fault, or the pharmacist's fault. or so. This is the price paid by consumers. So, And I, I don't think we should just pick on uh, the cost of a drug. Anybody ever seen a $2,000 ambulance bill for like five minutes in the ambulance? Anybody ever had to take their kid to the ER and seen like a $3,000 emergency room bill for, for something very brief? Not surprising that people really want to avoid care um, to get these high deductibles. They pay for it themselves, so we have a unit cost out. Now, a lot of you might say, you know, I don't know what I can do about that. Maybe you can't, but I think the way you have to think about this problem is the function of healthcare costs. It's yes, it's utilization, and yes, it's unit costs, but it's also our, it's also our mix. Where are we seeing people? And so, our unit costs are a function often of our mix, and that gets to my second difference. The second difference. Is that if you look at most of the other countries in the developed world, and if you take the best performing ones, they invest about, they spend about two thirds of their health care dollars on primary care and mental health, which means that they only have to spend a third on specialty care, surgeries, hospitals, post-acute care, all that other stuff. I saw some people looking scared actually. Um, they're wondering now they know why they're not doing business in those countries but you think about that, compared to the U.S., where we spend roughly the inverse. Roughly, we spend two-thirds on specialty care, sick care, the care that happens when people don't get preventive in primary care. Now, we spend probably, if we were really honest with ourselves, we spend even less on mental health. We probably do a little bit of a better job t- today on primary care. So... You know, if you if you were to ask yourself, am am I part of that solution? And I know that many of you, many companies that are emerging, uh, some of which uh, were mentioned this morning are going to be featured here today, are actually doing exactly that. They're focusing on, well, how do we how do we start to do that? But that's a big ship to turn. That's a big ship to turn, and one could argue that uh, unless we dramatically increase our investment in those things, um, we are going to have situations where people end up um, coming to us um, after it's too late. Um, and so that's why we are so reliant on pharmacological solutions and things that get to, can only get done in big buildings and intensive care units and so forth. Third, the third difference is, is somewhat related. It also has to do with something uh, we don't invest in as well, and that's uh, social services. Anti poverty programs, housing, um, education infrastructure. So now I'm sure all of you are sitting here going, Well, there's nothing I can do about that. That's a, big, that's a big problem. And that's true. If you're in healthcare, you are the recipient of years and years of often underinvestment in these kinds of things. In the rest of the OECD countries, they spend about twice as much on the programs that keep people in their communities and well and healthy and filled and satisfied and uh, out of poverty than we do in the U.S. They spend twice as much on that per person, and then they spend half as much on healthcare. And of course, healthcare is a much, much, much bigger number. So this fad around social determinants of health uh, that's emerging, um, you know, it, it, I think it's going to go one of two directions. It could end up just like every other you know, three-letter acronym that we invent in healthcare, it'll be a high-flying trend for a few years and we'll simplify it, marginalize it, or or we will, we'll get at some underlying truth, which is that fundamentally 60% of what happens to us that impacts our health has nothing to do with our DNA, it has nothing to do with an accident, it has to do with the fact that you know, we're not getting out of the house, we're not making our appointments, we're not doing a number of the things that it is that that we need to do. So that's, that's the third thing. The fourth difference between us and most of the rest of the world uh, is that we have chosen not to include everybody in our system. And I don't just mean people, the 30 million people that are uninsured. Um, but I think as Sam points out, most people, most people, maybe not in this room, but most people actually feel insecure about their ability to afford... And access healthcare. It's one of the reasons why, on the chart, the Kaiser chart that he showed, people are angry uh, because um, there is a line that's crossed, which is um, almost a um, for people um, uh, an existential line, which is, am I going to be able to take care of my family if somebody gets sick? And if you can't answer that question affirmatively and positively, you don't sleep as well at night. And you blame your politicians. And you blame people who are making money in the system because it's not working for you. And and let's face it, except for the very wealthy people, most of us don't know whether or not um, we're going to be able to afford that drug or every little expense uh, that comes our way, whether we are insured or not. Anybody, I was talking to the um, president of the American Cancer Society. Uh, and he told me, the number one call to the American Cancer Society hotline. Anybody know what the number one call is to the American Cancer Society hotline? And it's by far, there's not even a close number two. The number one call to the American Cancer Society hotline is, I can't afford to have cancer. That's the reason, and that's, and that's what goes through most people's heads when they get diagnosed with cancer because um, they know that a, a lot is about to hit them and they're not quite sure how they're going to pay for it. And if you think about the daily lives that that many people lead, um, we tend to think of health in the context and health insurance in the context of, uh, of of providing us access to care. But it's really more than that for a lot of people. It's actually the underpinning of a middle class life. So I'll take you back to 1965. And I don't think many people were even alive back then that are in this room. I was born in 1966, um, so I don't even remember it. But I was at CMS during the 50th anniversary of Medicare and Medicaid program, and one of the things I learned as I studied it is, in 1965, before Medicare and Medicaid, one out of every three seniors in the country lived below the poverty level. Something I think we take for granted today. Where we're at about seven or eight percent of seniors now live below the poverty level, but imagine that. Imagine in our country, not that long ago, one out of three seniors, our parents and grandparents, living in poverty. That means that they were living in their kids' basements or uh, or in their cars. Um, And if we didn't have these programs, that's where we would essentially be today. So you know, we have to understand. That when the rest of the world looks at us, and it has nothing to do with politics, when the rest of the world looks at us, they see a system that has chosen to uh, make people insecure to some degree. And uh, I had a conversation with one of the former prime ministers of Australia who said um, almost exactly that. He said, we love you guys. We love Americans. And I love comparing us to Australia because... If we, we compare ourselves to, like, northern European countries. It's kind of like socialism. But these are frontiers people, swashbuckling people, just like we'd see ourselves. And he said, you know, we love you guys, but we, there's one thing we just don't understand. And I said, what's that? He said, you seem to leave your citizens in a state of quiet desperation. And what he was talking about was just that uncertainty. And he said, we don't do everything in Australia, But we try to take the basics off the table, and you guys don't, and we don't really understand that. Uh, And it's not the only conversation like that I've had. That's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing, I think, um, is also quite interesting, and it it touches on some of the other points I made earlier, which is that if you look at where we stand today, uh, and and you go back to 1980, so you look at kind of where we stand from a cost and quality standpoint compared to the rest of the world, in 1980, we were in the middle of a pack. So something happened. Something happened in our lifetimes in the last 30, 40 years that changed that. And so when I go back and look at it, I don't think there's necessarily any one answer to what changed. But one of the things that has changed was in 1980, if you start to graph, there's one graph that looks exactly like the healthcare graph. And that's the graph of income inequality. 1980 is the year when the lower and the higher income brackets started to really separate and have gone, as you've seen those graphs, much, much higher since then. So with that insight, it would lead you to ask the question, maybe, our, maybe we should not look at our average, but if we look at a split, if we look at the higher and lower income brackets, there's some insight there. And in fact, the higher income brackets actually perform just as well from a health outcomes and standpoint as the rest of the world. It turns out that we just have a wide discrepancy. And that wide discrepancy, I think, is get, getting known, gets known to us. People with diabetes, for example, or people in lower income brackets are two times, 2.2 times more likely to have diabetes, uh, which is a problem. And you could say, well, they're not eating right, but you could also say uh, they don't have access to healthy foods. You can have that debate. But what's also true is that they're 60% less likely to visit a clinic for their diabetes. Can't afford it, can't get off work, etc. So diabetes, which is controllable, uh, goes in the direction. Depression. People in lower income brackets are 1.8 times more likely to have depression. And if you add depression to a physical illness, it increases the cost by 400%. So untreated depression, which is much more prevalent in lower-income communities. When you look at at it, uh, people in lower-income brackets are three times more likely to postpone, defer, or um, not seek care when needed. The result of all of this is you've got a three-times increase in all-cause mortality for the lowest income bracket and the highest income bracket in this country. And by the way, I think we should just be very honest. It's not just income. It's race. The disparities in race are as great if not greater. And I don't think we should just talk about income. And it's also zip code, rural versus urban. It's just a wide, wide disparity. In fact, if you want to prove this to yourself, go look at one of those, um, one of those zip code maps that show health outcomes by zip code, find a wealthy zip code next to a a poorer zip code. So take Princeton, New Jersey, and Trenton, New Jersey, roughly eight, 10 miles apart, 12-year difference in life expectancy, 10 miles apart. So as you think about that, and you think about where we are focusing our investment, our capital, our solutions, if we're chasing the problem and not chasing the dollar, we will recognize that um, getting high-caliber, well-off people who look a lot like most of us in this room to be even healthier, that's not the crisis in this country. We are not going to be the people that bankrupt the Medicare program. We're not going to be the people that are suffering the lowest health outcomes and cost consequences. Um, It's actually going to be focusing on those populations, 130 million people, who are driving significantly higher costs with very routine healthcare issues, but all kinds of complications that we need to do a better job serving. And those costs are not the problems of lower income people, they're all of our problems. They are the reason why everybody's healthcare is more expensive as well, because we ignore those factors. So, again, five, five things that I think are, are most different from us, and there are plenty of other problems to solve. But if we want to make our healthcare system perform, as well as it can, as well as it should, as well as other countries, we we all understand that if we're not dealing with unit cost, if we're not getting people preventive and primary care and mental health care, early childhood care, if we're not focusing on some of the social elements uh, that we need to keep people healthy, seen in their communities, seen in smaller buildings instead of bigger buildings, seen in their homes instead of small buildings, uh, if we're not focusing on how we make sure more people are included, And if we're not focusing on the uh, absolute uh, set of issues that that affect some of us, but not all of us, we're not going to be really moving the needle on our problem. But here's the good news. The good news is we don't have to solve it in any traditional formulaic ways. This is what, where now I will tell you what is better about our country than all those other stupid countries. (laughs) We know how to innovate and solve problems. And so when someone says, well, we, we just don't have enough primary care doctors, well, when has when that kind of problem stopped us? We know how when well, primary care doesn't have to be a person. Primary care can be an experience. We can reinvent what primary means if you live in a rural community, if you live in an urban community, if you like technology, if you don't like technology, if you've got a mental health issue, if you've got a chronic condition. We can, we can change the way that those kinds of things are thought about. And that's exactly what I think the call from all those people that were on the graph that Sam was pointing to that are very unhappy, that's what they expect from us, the people who are investing the capital uh, in this healthcare system. So I've left myself a little bit of time to answer questions. I can answer questions on any of the things I talked about, or you want to ask about the midterms, talk about politics, It's for a war story, I promise I will give you a direct answer or I will very gracefully dodge your question.
0: Uh, first, that was great. Thank you. Um, on something like a unit cost of insulin... Why do you think we don't see more new entrants, whether it's manufacturers or distribution, who try to arbitrage that that huge gap?
2: You know, sometimes we do, but, I mean, we have... You know, I think... You know, the, the problem is it's really quite interesting. When we had these kind of... When I was at CMS and we had these sort of bad examples, like Farmer Bro stuff, and people were raising cost 4,000% and all this. And uh, the the line that came out of the industry was, these are real exceptions. This is not what happens. Do not typecast all of us. And look, let's be frank, none of us want to be judged by our worst behaving competitor, right? So that's fair. So I asked uh, our data team to pull some data, and it turns out that there are, that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drugs That increase it by triple digits every year. Turns out there are thousands, like six, seven, eight thousand drugs that increase by double digits every year. Now, to be fair, those are gross prices, and if you looked at them on a net basis, the story is a bit mixed. And I think, but because it's opaque, uh, it's hard. It's hard to really know. You can hear one story from from one side and one story from the other. But, but the reality is that that business, the capital that goes into that business, there's a, it's got a price-taking mentality. The, the former head of the FDA, Rob Califf, before, um, before uh, uh, Gottlieb uh, said, we were on a panel and he was asked, what is the formula that pharma companies use to set their pricing? He said, actually, there's a very specific scientific formula they use, and it's called maximum pricing minus shame. And, if, and, so, and, and, and look, I, I've talked to Azar about the same thing that, that Sam has. Um, you know, th- this is, um, you know, feeling like, you know, I think Trump is frustrated, and Azar is because they feel like that's the only tool they have right now. Uh, but, but in the specific case of, diabetes, of the diabetes drugs, there were two competitive drugs, and there's a, I think there's an antitrust case about that, but I'm not sure. They, they both were rising at exactly the same rate every year.
0: What role does the lack of price and outcomes transparency play in the price inflation, and what role
2: can it play in the solution very little i think uh, i look I, I think I think we think of transparency as a um, as a solve because we know it 's missing and we know it 's different uh, but i 've seen no evidence that people who know what things cost uh, choose uh, the lower cost things i've seen no Evidence that when people are advertised the price that that's actually what they end up paying because of all the things that end that end up uh, occurring. Now I think in some targeted areas, like you know, very discrete things like like dentistry, LASIK surgery, like prescription drugs, the disclosure of price um, c- could have some benefit. But there's no none of these other countries have reduces their prices by making them transparent. It just doesn't just doesn't seem to work. What about uh, Singapore's got a unique and I think successful system but I think it's successful for a lot of reasons and if we have more time we'll talk about it but um, but they're a model that I think does employ a lot of those techniques pretty well but I would I would argue that it's not transparency in and of itself is going to solve anything in my opinion.
0: Uh, hi, my name is Iqbal Sharif. I'm the CEO of Best of Health Network in Chicago. Um, my question is that uh, one of the trends I'm seeing from my conversations with federal, state, and payers in Illinois is that there's a, uh, a crash course between medical sciences and the arts of social services. Um, why do you say that uh, social services is, is going to become a fad as opposed to like a long-term solution when it's driving like 50% of the cost?
2: was being a little bit cute here, only in that I do think we are on to... The an under, A root underlying root cause. Um, I'll give you a little bit of data. Uh, number one cause of early death in this country, according to a recent study, anybody know? It's not obesity. It's not even poverty. Social isolation. Social isolation. Anybody heard of diseases of despair? You know what that phrase means? It's in kind of a newer term. Over the last... Well, first I'll define it. Diseases of despair are alcoholism, drug addiction, and suicide. Okay. Over the last decade, we've lost a million Americans to diseases of despair. Now, that's not the bad news. That's horrible news. But the really bad news is that we are now on track over the next decade to lose 2 million people to diseases of despair. So I think... If we think that this is about getting more MAT out into communities, we are fooling ourselves. We are chasing a symptom. What we have to understand is that there are underlying things that drive addiction. I'm not smart enough to know what they are. There are experts that that do. There are things that cause childhood anxiety. One out of every uh, four children apparently shows up to school, and in some schools it's much higher than this, uh, with with an anxiety disorder. The best provider of mental health in our country, by far, the biggest provider, the prison systems. So, people who have um, severe mental health issues, the smartest thing, many times, for them to do is get arrested because it's the only place they can find treatment. So, um, I, I didn't mean to imply that it was a fad, only that as we, I was making a little bit of a bad joke, that as we invest in things in healthcare, Oftentimes, we, we, we sometimes oversimplify them. They become trend, and we kind of don't focus on that underlying issue. But I see there's companies that do that. I'm want to pick on one company because there's a lot of great companies here, but um, Toyin is here from City Block Health. I think you're going to hear from her later today. Their entire business model revolves around um, focusing on the person and their underlying issues and, and seeing them where they are in, in uh, urban environments. So there's a, and, and there are others, too, that I think are emerging, and I think that's a great trend.
1: All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the Breaking Health podcast this week. Again, thank you for your patience. We're excited to bring you the Breaking Health podcast. And we're going to have many, many more coming your way, and we're very, very pleased to add Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders, to our roster. So I hope you will uh, will subscribe to both. If you haven't subscribed to Breaking Health, please do. If you haven't subscribed yet to Healthcare is Hard, that's forgivable, but you uh, should do so right away. And of course as always uh tell your friends let them know about uh about these podcasts and uh share the value that they bring to you. I could not be um more gratified for the uh the numbers we're seeing in terms of the listens to the podcast. Uh, I really do uh, appreciate the support and uh we at HealthEd will continue to bring you great events and uh great community building products like these podcasts. So thanks again for joining us this week. We will not be producing a podcast of any type next week on Thanksgiving week. We're going to take the week off, but we'll be back at it the week after Thanksgiving. So look for your next Breaking Health podcast then, and we'll have a Healthcare is Hard a podcast for insiders next month. So subscribe, and you will hear from uh, from another very important leader in the healthcare space. We've already got the interview subscribe, um, recorded, and I know you'll enjoy it. So. Thanks for listening. And uh, again, tune in two weeks for the Breaking Health podcast. And next month for the Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders.